The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello everybody, my name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today, we will be discussing and doing a deep dive and rebuttal to the many lies of Andy Woodard and his recent lecture at a Sovereign Nations conference thrown by Michael O'Fallon, the arch enemy of Christian nationalism and sort of one of the, you know, one of the puppet masters that's kind of instigating a lot of the division within the church. And you see that with G3, you see that with people like Jenna Ellis and Bill Roach and Andy Woodard as well. So, uh, we're going to be rebutting Andy Woodard point by point in his lecture. We're going to be doing this at 1.5 speed, which will be the most efficient. You can still hear him pretty well at that speed because he's a slow talker, evidently. And we're going to save time, but also add more to it. Uh, but first, I want to let you know, Evangelical Dark Web, Christian News Gathering Commentary Ministry. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button if you are new to the channel or podcast. Um, we also have a Patreon-like system. You can check that out as well. Free newsletter as well. But like I said, least you can do is like and subscribe if you are new. So we're going to be diving into this lecture. one who has studied these issues in an academic setting and from a historical angle and a theological angle. But it also matters to me as a pastor whose responsibility is to shepherd souls and to seek after those who are lost. My job as a pastor is not to seek the prosecution and execution of sinners and heretics, but to seek their conversion to faith in Christ, as well as the preservation of the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, even if these people do not become Christians. I've learned about these issues from an intellectual angle, but I've also seen it in practice in the church and society, like going to a laboratory after listening to a lecture. I've realized that ideas have consequences, and I know what these proposals will lead to. As a result, I have an obligation to stand up and to say something. By the way, I'm also addressing this, and we're also here today, because I can recognize a Fed trap when I see one. I can see that this Christian nationalist project is the Christian version of January 6th. It is a false flag operation where members of the other team have picked up the Christian flag and are waving it and saying, let's storm the Capitol, we can take over. Let's abolish the Constitution. Let's break up the United States into many independent states with established churches in each state. Let's call for established churches. Let's call for theology police and blasphemy codes and speech codes and legal prohibitions on unapproved churches. I can see a trap when it comes up. I can see the danger in radicalizing half this country's conservatives into self-identifying with terms and labels and ideas which have been marked and they've marked themselves as domestic terrorists by following this Pied Piper's pipe dream. So, so I wanted to pause right there. A uh, lot of issues with what he said. Like the, the idea that he's basically going off of the Michael O'Fallon, James Lindsay line of thinking. Like this is, you know, they're literally moving his lips like a puppet right here. And the point of being, oh, it's a Fed trap, which is... Basically, an attempt to say that any movement that tries to galvanize people on the right to action is automatically a fed trap. That in itself is a psyop. That is what they want you to think. Now, there are dumb ideas. There are actual fed traps. There are actual fed organizations. 
you know, a lot of the J6ers um, even uh, were manipulated by Fed traps. And even some of the people that went to jail were Feds. So that that's true. But this is not the same issue. You're talking about Christians believing what Christians have long really believed. Like, you can look at ancient history and you'll see Christian nationalism there. You'll see that people want to um, establish or restore a Christian heritage to a nation. And what is a nation? It is a people in a place. Now, he'll disagree with that in a second. And I, I do want to say all of this lecture is bad. Like, there, uh, there is one good point in it. Uh, and we'll get there when we get there. But all of it's bad. The bad content is spread evenly throughout, which is why we didn't really clip this. So the idea that anything trying to galvanize people to action or to rethink things is a Fed trap, fallacious. There's no evidence that the people leading the Christian nationalist movement are Feds. I happen to know quite a few of them. Uh, and I have a good rapport with quite a few of them. And they aren't Feds. Uh, Brian Auten, the person who create who coined the term evangelical dark web, he was a Fed. That was a Fed that coined that term. I've co-opted it for my own ministry, but that that term was co uh, coined by a Fed. And this isn't it. This isn't the same issue. And he's also saying this without evidence. What he said about it being a Fed trap is complete conjecture. What he said about its views on we, we're going to split America up and have an established church in each state, that's conjecture. There's nothing to that. That's a straw man that he's uh, dealing with right there. So this is not an engagement in good faith and already, you know, three minutes, nine seconds, plainly obvious. So this conference is our attempt to stand up and to do something. I hope this conference is helpful and I want to thank you up front for coming. So this brings me to this message, how to actually save the world. The message will have two points. The first is the false hope of Christian nationalism, the false hope of Christian nationalism. Uh, first off, you need to understand that Christian nationalism as a thing, as a term, it cannot be misrepresented. It cannot be misrepresented. So what I mean by So what he's saying is uh, there is no such thing as Christian nationalism, so you can't misrepresent it, yet he's doing an entire lecture on Christian nationalism. What he's trying to do is excuse his bad faith argumentation. Because there are multiple definitions that are offered. Like I just gave my definition earlier about establishing or restoring a Christian nation, uh, a Christian heritage to a people. And there's more to that definition, but that's like the main part of the definition. The more to it is like the means by which it's accomplished. And Stephen Wolf's definition, which is actually very close to my definition, it's just worded completely different, but the points are all the same. The points are all there. So we're all painting a dip, the same picture uh, from different perspectives. We're, we're noticing the same thing. Now, Stephen Wolf is, you know, Thomistic and uh, uh, classical two kingdoms, whereas other people in the Christian nationalist movement in the Christian nationalist project are not. But the idea that we don't have a unified definition, I don't really think that's true. I think that's a straw man and you could say that about conservatism, that there is no unified definition of conservatism. So therefore, the term doesn't exist. And therefore, you can't misrepresent conservatives because there's no such single definition of conservatism. That's bad argumentation. Especially when he's going to hold up Stephen Wolf's book and not engage with his definition 
but he's going to engage with him as a thought leader, but not engage with his definition. By that is you can ignore accusations of misrepresentation. If someone says, hey, are you a Christian nationalist? And you say, no, I'm not. And here's three reasons why. And then they say, oh, well, you're misrepresenting it. You can just say, no, I'm not. But it doesn't matter because it's impossible to misrepresent this. And here's some reasons why. Well, first off, their goal in accusing you of misrepresentation is simply to silence you, and that's it. Same with accusing you of slander. This is the same tactic from the simple sabotage manual from the CIA, which says to haggle over precise wording in communication, to haggle over minutes, to haggle over resolutions. That's the goal, is just to throw a bunch of sand in the gears to keep things from happening. So you can ignore accusations of misrepresentation, ignore accusations of slander, because you cannot misrepresent them any more than you can misrepresent anything that has no meaningful definition. Like conservatism. Some reasons why this cannot be misrepresented is, there are, yes, there is a statement on Christian nationalism, but that statement on Christian nationalism does not represent the mainstream version of Christian nationalism. The authors of the statement on Christian nationalism do not have the authority to speak on behalf of the group, and they only represent just a small section of the group. The statement on Christian nationalism does not represent the views of the original Christian nationalists. Who does? Groups who adopt the label differ widely in their ideology. There are many, many versions of Christian nationalism. So to restate this, yes, there has been an attempt to define the position by writing the statement on Christian nationalism, but that statement does not represent even some of the most popular mainstream versions of Christian nationalism, including that of Stephen Wolf. Stephen Wolf is the author of this book, which I have been suggested that I should hold it upside down so they don't turn me into a meme, but this is his book. This is the standard. Your new online website statement on Christian nationalism does not represent his position. So Stephen Wolf is the standard, but you're not going to engage with his definition, even though you're saying he's the standard, he's the thought leader. You see how that argument completely collapses on its own merit. Um, additionally, he, he's setting up so many things that he has to answer. The, the He's begging the question, but he's not answering. He's not going to answer these questions like, oh, no one's a standard bearer. But uh, Stephen Wolf is a standard, but I'm not going to engage his definition because there is no unifying definition, even though I, I just said that Stephen Wolf is a standard bearer. There, there's no coherence here. He's arguing in bad faith and trying to justify arguing in bad faith. That is the point of this opening section. He wants to justify arguing in bad faith. He wrote his position long before the Baptists decided to adopt this project. So the writers and authors of the statement do not have the authority to speak on behalf of the group, and they must solicit signatures from those who agree with them. Now let's talk for a very brief moment about three elements from the statement on Christian nationalism. First off, the definition of a nation. I find this wildly problematic. I'm not sure if I'm alone, but it says, we affirm that a nation is not merely an idea, abstract principle, or ideology, but it tangibly is defined by a particular body of people in a particular place. The key words there are people in place. Now that might not seem wildly problematic to you right now, but hopefully it will in about two minutes. People in place is very similar to blood and soil. Ooh. In fact, it's the same thing. Ooh. Blood and soil is a Nazi slogan. Okay. So let's say that you happen to be married to someone who is something other than white European. What if you wrote the statement on Christian nationalism and you're married to someone who is perhaps not white, but you wrote these words? My response is, get out of here with your Nazi rhetoric. Don't even think about sending me a private message or a text message saying, Andy, I'm very disappointed in you. Where are your parents? You can't have both this statement that America is a people and a place and your so-called interracial marriage. Because either this nation is a people and a place or it represents an idea, an ideology that anyone is actually welcome to become an American, not just Europeans. Okay, uh, there it is. Either America is a people and a place, which is what a nation is, or we're nothing. We're just some vacuous idea that most Americans do not believe. 
Most voting Americans do not believe in the idea that he espouses that is America. America is not an idea. It is a people in a place with a unique heritage. And he's saying, if you believe that, if you believe that America is more than idea, an idea, if you actually love this country and believe that it's more than an idea, then you are a Nazi. This is a clown. Andy Woodard is a clown. He doesn't know what a nation is. He believes that America is an idea. How insulting is that to an to America? Like, how, how much do you hate this country to denigrate it to an idea? A vacuous idea that most Americans do not believe in. Most Americans don't believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Most Americans wouldn't agree with the Declaration of Independence. Most Americans don't even know the Constitution, let alone believe it. Yet anyone can become an American. So we should just let illegal immigrants ta- come into our border because anyone can become an American. There, there's no nothing defining what this people group is. There's nothing defining what this place is or our borders are. Give me a break. Now, do I think that the writers of this statement are actually racist? No. But they have been caught up in something very bad, which includes racists which is why they've adopted this language. Because the people that are coaching them, some of them are true racists. Like who? By the way, before we move on, you cannot have both theonomy and strong opposition to immigration. Yes, you can. These simply don't work. They're incompatible. Why? Well, because the Law of Moses was not a document that had these strong oppositions to immigration. You can't have people in place and have theonomy, in other words. That's a lie. There's nothing true about that. That's just his conjecture. Now, I'm not a theonomist. I would actually classify Christian nationalists as my view, and I think that's most encompassing of my view, because theonomy, again, not everything's a one-for-one. We have to tailor laws to the needs of our people and our place. Um, So, you know, theonomy does not answer all these questions. There's a lot of things that are wrong that aren't specifically in the Old Testament law, but we know are wrong because the laws are in our hearts and we have to legislate accordingly. So there is a specific time and a specific context to a specific people that the law of Moses was applied. Now, yes, I would agree that the general equity of those laws can be applied to our nation, our people in place. But I would not say that I was that I'm a theonomist as a result of that, because I still think that the general equity theonomy position is still inadequate for encompassing all of what I view on how um, biblical laws should be made. So um, for the reasons that I just explained, but this is a clown show argument that you can't be a theonomist and a Christian uh, or a theonomist and believe in border security as though, you know, the ancient nation of Israel just allowed invasions to take place on a daily basis. Stupid argument. The second thing I want to talk about is this middle column, a theonomic nation. This document is a theonomic document. We affirm that the Christian Nationalist Project entails national recognition of essential Christian orthodoxy, Article 2, as a Christian consensus under Jesus Christ, the Supreme Lord and King of all creation, and the establishment of the general equity of the Ten Commandments as the foundational law of the nation. We affirm the responsibility of civil authorities to protect the soul, not to convert the soul. We deny that laws against public blasphemy, coercion, coerce conversion, or hinder religious liberty in private. 
This statement on Christian nationalism is an overtly, explicitly theonomic statement. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you are a wonderfully blessed person, and I would encourage you to continue not knowing what this is talking about because it's a much more pleasant life. But if you do know what I'm talking about, you need to be aware that this document has baked into the DNA of the statement the foundational presupposition of theonomy. What happens if you're not a theonomist? Um, again, that's... So what you would have to say is that the founding fathers were all theonomists because we had blasphemy laws in this country. Uh, so what, what, what do you make of that? What do you make of the fact that we had blasphemy laws on the books until very recently in American history? You know, the post-World War II consensus uh, changed that. What do you make of that? Were the founding fathers theonomists? Because theoretically, you could implement Christian nationalism in the United States of America by going back to America as it was founded. And no, that does not include reinstituting slavery because, um, you know, again, Amer people in America were born into slavery. They weren't, you know, we ended the our participation in the slave trade, by the way. Um, so we're not going to be enslaving black people in Christian nationalism. That's a ridiculous argument, but I do believe he might make a reference to that. I, I've only listened to this once, but that is a ridiculous argument because he would basically have to denounce the founding fathers to make that argument. There's also another problem, which is, well, the founder of this whole thing, this guy is not a theonomist, so he claims, claims not to be a presuppositionalist, claims a lot of things, which they, they're, uh, they're, they're contradicting each other within not. themselves. So you say this is not exclusively a theonomic project, but then you make these kind of statements in your project saying that it is theonomic. And then thirdly, let's talk about the blue state blues. We deny that pragmatism should be the driving force behind the decision-making of a Christian movement. Again, another controversy, which I hope you're not aware of, but if you are, I got into a dust-up over the last month or so over two different controversies involving one particular person. The Joel first of which was addressing this man's call to Christians getting out of blue states and moving into red states. And he has called specifically for as much as 90% of Christians should move out of California. My response is that if 90% of Christians move out of California, then every church in the state of California is going to close. Which sounds like a strategy of Satan, or as I call it, a doctrine of demons. This is an idea that Satan would think up, hey, let's close all of the churches in entire regions of the country. How about New England? Let's get all the churches out of there. How about California? How about New York? Well, that's something Satan would like. But the statement says, we deny that pragmatism should be the driving force behind the decision-making of a Christian movement. Within that whole debate, there was this stepping back and saying, wait a second, it's time for Christians to think strategically. It's time for Christians to think practically. And, and we need to make these strategies to take back our country by moving the however many million Christians from California and distributing them into Georgia and Wisconsin and these other states in order to win the next election. We must think practically here. Well, that's called pragmatism. And your statement that you helped edit says that Christians should not be thinking and being driven by pragmatism, but instead should be driven by principles or theology or things like that. So Andy Woodard would be on the losing end of a great sort of... Uh, so he would be on the losing end of that, uh, of Christians moving from blue states to red states because he pastors a church in Manhattan. So he pastors a church in one of the most liberal cities in the United States. And the idea that, you know, if you're in, I, I'm pretty sure he said some very controlling things in this regard. Like even, you know, John MacArthur, I, I, I would consider him a MacArthur bro to some degree or a TMS bro to some degree. But John MacArthur wouldn't go that far. So he goes way beyond what John MacArthur would ever say about, you know, church authority, the church's authority in your own life. You know, the idea that if someone wants to move out of New York City to, you know, 
raise a family because New York City is not a good place to raise a family. He, this guy wouldn't encourage that. You know, he would say stick with your local church and all. If you can't find love in New York City and you want to move away to, you know, go somewhere where you could find uh, a wife because New York City is a degenerate, you know, dating pool, not going to really encourage that. Um, so he said stuff along those lines. So he's very much against people moving out of blue states because, first of all, that would hurt him. That would hurt his church. But the idea that this wouldn't benefit the people that are moving. And moreover, staying in these places where you enjoy a high cost of living, high standard of living, high amenities. How is that not also pragmatic? And you're placing that over the safety and well-being of your children. Uh, you know, the idea that you're not going to raise children in a uh, hostile environment that, you know, maybe children aren't ready for confronting a hostile environment, especially if they're not, uh, you know, be confessed believers yet, but or mature believers even. It's just ridiculous. Like the great sword is one of the biggest things that we could do to actually um, uh, save the United States on a broad movement level, because. Again, you got a bunch of people wasting their votes in California, which I believe is the state with the most registered Republicans, and you distribute those elsewhere, uh, and it works. You tip the electoral uh, college in your favor for generations, perhaps. That. So let's keep moving. Um, There are different versions of Christian nationalism. Stephen Wolf, in his book, which I keep holding up, says, Our heretics are publicly persistent in their damnable error and actively seek to convince others of this error, to subvert the established church. So he's assuming an established church, not a free society, free churches, but established state churches, to denounce its ministers or to instigate rebellion against magistrates. For these reasons, they can be justifiably put to death. Case for Christian nationalism, page 391. So one thing about Stephen Wolf's book is he summarizes the beliefs of the reformers, mainly... Uh, John Calvin would be one of the biggest reformers that it, he's like the most cited person in that book, I believe. Uh, and then I believe it's Francis Turretin is number two. So Stephen Wolf's book is a compilation of what the what these reformers believed about Protestant magisterial authority, uh, civil authority. So that is what Stephen Wolf's book is about. And these people believed in an established church, uh, and then therefore the nation could, could, you know, go after heretics. And you know what? A lot of Christians before that believed that. A lot of historic Christians believe that it's not a sin to believe that. It really isn't. It's not a sin issue. But he doesn't want to understand the context of what Stephen Wolf is saying. It's cool to take him out of context, I guess. But I also, again, there is a context which, in theory, that wouldn't be wrong. I don't really have a problem with what that quote says about arch heretics being put to death in a proper context. It wouldn't work in the American government. But there are different forms of Christian nationalism where that could take place. They don't really take place here, uh, anywhere I can think of, but certainly in the past, centuries prior, it it's not the worst thing in the world. 
There are different versions of Christian nationalism. There are versions that would say, um, I believe that blasphemers and heretics should be executed. I believe we should abolish the Constitution, get rid of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, women's right to vote, and um, oh, let's abolish the 13th Amendment too, by the way, and reinstitute slavery. There are people advocating for that who call themselves Christian nationalists. Who? Burden the, burden the proof is on him to provide evidence for these claims because he's not providing evidence for these claims. Uh, yeah, and again, it's pretty common sense that the 19th Amendment, you know, is a bad idea. It goes against God's created order. Uh, it was the people that advanced that were literally trying to go against God's created order in doing so. You know, if you read the early feminist, they were all raging. Like, they were... The blue-haired feminist now is them, the feminist back then. You know, the feminist mystique and all this other garbage. Uh, it was all bad. Feminism was always bad. So, wh wh what's the issue with that? But then he wants to straw man and act like blasphemy laws are inconsistent with the Constitution. Even though they existed when the Constitution was written and there was... No contradiction there. This is why I'm saying you cannot misrepresent them. It, it goes as far as the furthest thing you could imagine, and then it also goes to the most neutral, benign things, such as, oh, well, I'm a Christian nationalist because I'm a Christian and I love America. There's this, this incredible range. There are people saying, well, when we take over America, atheists will be forced, converted, and then executed. Who? After they are forced to admit Jesus Christ is Lord. Who's saying that? That's a winning strategy. So I've retitled point one, The False Hope of Christian Authoritarianism. Because that's what this is. It's not Christian nationalism, it's Christian authoritarianism. Christian nationalists have a lust for power. They might respond, well, someone has to have the power, it might as well be us. One problem that I can already think of is that your group already has neo-Confederates in it and anti-Semites and white nationalists and a whole bunch of feds spurring this on, throwing cash their way, saying, keep going, keep going. The same way they did. Okay, who's getting this money? Who's getting this money? Like, I wanna know, cause I know he's getting some shekels from Michael Fallon for this, right? Uh, you know, uh, James Lindsay's getting a lot of shekels from Michael O'Fallon for this, right? Because they, he's, he's the, uh, founder of James Lindsay's corporation or James Lindsay's, uh, monetization, which is new discourses. Uh, so who's actually making money off this issue? I, I imagine some people are like from a Patreon like system, uh, you know, you can support me, by the way, but who's making money from this? I, I, I would imagine, I'm pretty sure John Harris said something in a live stream along the way lines of losing money over this issue. So maybe Joel Webbins, you know, boosted his career on this issue. Stephen Wolf has said there's not really any money in books and, and stuff. So who's, who's making money off this? Where are the organizations with the dark money on this? Like, who are the feds giving the money to? Because they haven't offered me any cash. Um, no one's really been astroturfed. And I know a lot of the thought leaders in Christian nationalism, they are either, you know, independently have some cash on them, or they're pastors, or they're people like John. Well, John Harris wouldn't necessarily adopt the label, but I think he embodies a lot of the beliefs. Eighty Robles is he getting rich off this? Who who who's making money off of this? I I know the players. I know most of the major players. Um, Charles Haywood's not necessarily a Christian nationalist. A lot of overlap between the two beliefs. 
he's independently wealthy. I don't think he's making a whole lot of money on this issue either. So who's making money? G3 when they charge uh, for, you know, the pre-conference and all that? They're, they seem to be making money. Uh, Sovereign Nation seems to be making money. This is ridiculous. January 6th. What could possibly go wrong? This Christian nationalist project is not fundamentally about Christianity, but a false hope of political power, which is in fact just authoritarianism. Wolf also says, which by the way, there's such great irony in last names these days. By granting religious liberty to all Orthodox Christians, if deemed suitable, would effectively end dissension, as I've defined it, and create a sort of pan-Protestant civil society. This is precisely what I hope for future arrangements in North America. Still, there are times when establishment is necessary and good. So he's hoping for a pan-Protestantism, but then also there might be time for an established church as well, which is a more specific, more particular version of Protestantism, such as Presbyterianism or Anglicanism or some other group. Again, I don't see anything wrong with that statement. Like, it's really cringe that you're really highlighting that to say that this is bad, even though that's how this country was founded. There was established churches. Now, Maryland got religious liberty the best because they said freedom of religion for Christianity. Freedom to practice Christianity. Uh, and was it 1642 was when that happened. And then they enshrined it in the Maryland Constitution, the first version of it in 1776. And then the U.S. Constitution would take influence from the Maryland Constitution. So Maryland got this issue probably the, the best, uh, be, even though, you know, it did give, you know, it, it, it created a place where Catholics and Protestants could get along. Um, if, you, and if you look at European history at that time, Catholics and Protestants weren't exactly getting along. And it was leading to a lot of bloodshed. So this matters. He doesn't understand America's founding. That's very evident. He thinks America is an idea and not a people in a place. He said as much. And it's ridiculous. So I just inserted these quotes to help you understand that this is a real idea that's being put out there. And this is the foremost leader, the thought leader of, of the movement. Um, let's talk briefly about loser eschatology and boomer theology. So there is a modern version of postmillennialism. In recent days, a modern version of postmillennialism has become extremely popular. Please make no mistake about it. This version of postmillennialism, which is theonomic postmillennialism, again, if you don't know what that is, you are a blessed person. But theonomic postmillennialism is to traditional postmillennialism what John Nelson Darby was to Kiliasm or historic premillennialism. Again, if you, don't, don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But if you do know what I'm talking about, you need to understand that John Nelson Darby had this new idea which took the same word premillennialism that had existed for 2,000 years or the same concept and then rebranded it taking that same label. Well, that's what theonomic postmillennialism has done to traditional postmillennialism. And then they pull everyone who has ever been postmillennial throughout history and say, oh, look, they're on our team, when in fact they might be extremely different. Like, I'm pretty sure that's not accurate at all. To gain credibility for something new and novel, uh, while also attacking other positions. But interesting that he defends, um, uh, or actually goes after, the dispensationalists okay, here. Okay, boomer is an expression used to criticize and silence people that you don't like who are coming up with things that are older and not as cool as you. So this, what I'm calling a Theobro version of okay, boomer, is just saying, oh, well, that's boomer theology. He's used to silence someone who is saying something that you don't like. In this case, the one saying it is a millennial who feels like they suddenly don't need to honor their mother and father, which is, by the way, one of the commandments, which the namas part of theonomy requires. 
My parents are Gen X, by the way. So winning here. Um, also, you know, the boomers or the boomer cons, the boomer mentality that he's talking about is post-World War II consensus. What about the ideology that predates World War II? You know, what about reformed, uh, the reform reformation uh, thinkers and thoughts? What about, you know, pre-papacy, early church fathers and how they thought about these things? You know, there's a lot of ways that respecting your elders could be interpreted here. Uh, and I think that would also include uh, precursors in the faith. But obviously, it starts with the people most uh, in your proximity, which don't necessarily include people online, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, honor your mother and your father. A, a lot of people in the Christian nationalist movement, their mothers and fathers are actually Gen X, not the boomers that he's talking about. But anyway, ridiculous point. And would have you executed for not doing. You're dishonoring your mother and father. OK, we'll take you out behind the barn and shoot you. Someone doesn't have the under audacity to say someone doesn't understand the Old Testament. Disrespect your elders to mock them in this way. Well, that was a Reddit tier atheist argument there. Calling yourself a theonomist? This is insanity. Never go full Reddit. They don't need to speak respectfully to those who are older than them. So they're using a generational label as an insult. Um, pietism. Pietism is another word that's, that's thrown as an accusation. It's anything that's focused on conversion and salvation instead of prioritizing the culture wars. That is Who's not that? true. Why? Because well, we didn't that's actually study anything. We've just been reading memes and blogs. We've got an empire to build, and we're going to build our empire by retreating and withdrawing into cloistered communities. Well, Jacob Spenner was actually the founder of German pietism and the author of a book called um, Holy Desires, uh, Pia Desideria. Pietism was a separatist movement in the Lutheran church seeking holiness and renewal through separation from the world. So let me assure you that withdrawing from society is actually not going to redeem society. While this is the new strategy of the theonomic postmillennialists, post I can assure you that it is not a new strategy. It's been tried before, and it doesn't work. Uh, it did work. It built this country. All this I believe in the Constitution that he goes on about, which he'll go on about later, and he doesn't understand America's founding. Whatsoever. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Yes, there is a degree to which you need to shelter and protect your kids, but sheltering and protecting your kids does not have a one-to-one -one ratio of saving them or keeping them or preventing them from coming out of the closet as soon as they first have the opportunity. I went to the flagship school of the movement known as fundamentalism, and the amount of kids, the number of kids who came out as gay the moment they graduated from college, because they were forced to go there, 
They were sent by their parents. They had no other option. So they walked the straight and narrow, sort of, while they were in college. And then they graduate, and now they come out as gay. And it's a shocking number, including students from the ministry class, from the music department, from the seminary. Pietism is not the answer. It's not the solution. And then accusing your opponents of it is also extremely dishonest, which is also one of the Ten Commandments, which also carries with it very It's not dishonest because they are pietist. The theonomic system. Um, here's a quote. As we disciple the nations, Matthew 28, our weapons for doing so are word and water, bread and wine. These are the instruments we are to use in order to make the obedience of the nations complete. These are our assigned weapons for the gospel era. Sounds like pietism, right? Definitely a pietist with loser eschatology. Let me assure you that if someone said this who came from outside of the Christian nationalist camp, he would certainly be marked as a pietist with loser eschatology. But in fact, this quote is from a man named Doug Wilson in his book, Mere Christendom. What you find as you're reading through this book or listening to these people is that there's an enormous amount of double talk where they'll say one thing, then they'll say something else that contradicts it, the exact opposite, just pages later. The accusation that these and many people give is that classical liberals don't have a plan. Just to be clear, classical liberalism is not the same thing as the modern concept or the street lingo of, oh, well, he's a liberal. Classical liberalism is the idea of freedom and liberty. No, it's not. Constitutionally protected rights. Wrong. It's not the same thing as leftism. So... Classical liberalism gave way to leftism, which I just call liberalism. There's no point in saying leftism anymore. It's just liberalism. We want to paint liberalism as the bad. Uh, so trying to you know, say, oh, this is leftism because they're not really liberal. N yes, they are. Liberalism got us here. And the, the idea that America had a classical liberal founding, it's actually in reality... America operated much more like a Christian nationalist nation at its founding. You could talk about the erudite debates, but when you talk about states having established churches, states having blasphemy laws, sodomy laws, uh, you know, swift execution for murderers, it was a different place. It was a different time. And... They didn't have, you know, universal suffrage, which is a classical liberal idea. The accusation from the Christian nationalists, from the theonomists, from the postmillennialists, from all these people is, well, you don't have a plan. At least we have a plan. At least we have a solution to all of the societal decay. We have a solution to trans story hour. All that you have is just vote harder. Well, is that so? Is it true that you don't have a plan? Is it true that the constitutional conservative doesn't have a plan? Well, I suppose it depends on what kind of plan you're talking about. Because we do, in fact, have a plan to limit tyranny and to allow freedom of worship and freedom of speech and the right to private property. We have a plan, and it's called the Constitution. It's called Christian faithfulness. But do we... Just Constitution harder. That's not a plan. You can't Constitution harder when a judge is trained not to be a constitu is trained not to constitution at all. They're just going to overrule you in court. You're going to get steamrolled. You can't just constitution harder. That's not how this works. Do we have a plan to usher in the eschaton? Do we have a plan to usher in the kingdom of God on the earth and to make Jesus reign here now under our fist as his rod of iron is our sword or gun? Is that what we're attempting? Well, no. But I would also venture to say neither do you, the Christian nationalists. You do not have a plan to accomplish what you were talking about. Again, Stephen Wolf's book, page 396, he says, this chapter is an outline of principles, not a blueprint for action. Why? Because he doesn't have a blueprint for action. Because there is no blueprint for action, because this will not work. By the way, it was never intended to work. 
It was only intended to lure about half of half the country off into a pipe dream to get them marked on a no-fly list by the FBI. So here is a plan for action. It's called The Boniface Option by Andrew Eisker. I am in the middle of reading it. I'm almost done reading it. It's a plan for action. I also have my upcoming book, um, which will be called Winning Not Winsome, The Ten Commandments of Spiritual Warfare. That is also a plan for action that kind of predates all this debate. It was written before a lot of this debate, okay? Um, it does make reference to the issue of Christian nationalism in a positive way, of course. But it was not written with this debate in mind. It was written as, you know, a discernment ministry in mind. So, there's plans for action. And the idea that there, there's nothing, like, this book was out before... But there is a plan for action. I just want to say he's dead wrong on that. To radicalize them into insane ideas. Like what? He goes on, this follows my principle throughout this work, that each group, each people group, must decide for themselves how they will govern and arrange themselves. My response to Mr. Wolf the Greater, as Dr. Lindsay has coined the term, my response to Stephen Wolf is, we've already done this. That each people group should decide for themselves how they govern and arrange themselves. We've done this already, and it is called the Constitution. So we don't need to refound this country. We don't need a new founding. We don't need to reconstitute things. We need to actually just stick with what we've got and keep the main thing the main thing. So Stephen Wolf came on the Evangelical Dark Web and said that Christian nationalism could be implemented in the United States with the Constitution. And it wouldn't contradict. Why? Because Christian nationalism has many manifestations. It could manifest itself as a monarchy. It can manifest itself as a constitutional republic. It can manifest itself as a Protestant Franco. It can manifest itself as a Protestant Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee, if you prefer that. There's multiple manifestations of it because Christian nationalism doesn't prescribe a form of government like neoconservatism does. It doesn't believe that you can just take America and put it somewhere else because America is just an idea. And if we just you know, get these people to accept their idea, they're going to have a functioning constitutional republic. That's not how it works, especially since the United States sets up a British parliamentary style government, which is like the worst in these other nations. It's ridiculous. So this brings me then into point two, the second half of my message. Because again, the title is how to actually save the world. Well, you need to understand this paradigm, and that is the paradigm of the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. In a, in a topical talk like this, where you could really go any particular direction, I asked a friend what, what I should do with this, and it was suggested that this paradigm is perhaps the strongest argument against the Christian nationalist movement, and that is with the traditional historical paradigm of the theology of glory versus theology of the cross. This is a thing. I'm not making this up. Theology of glory. Theology of glory is built on an over-realized eschatology. Kingdom now. It requires word games and double talk. But there's nuance. There's nuance. You need to remember my nuance and my context. Oh, because you're lying? Theology of glory is karma theology. If you do the right thing, you will get the right outcome. Well, not necessarily. I just saw, just saw a post on Instagram yesterday from Doug Wilson, who is the granddaddy of this movement in some ways, um, he, from his book called Standing on the Promises, which is tied to his Federal Vision theology, which is the idea of um, kind of a Catholic concept of salvation, of, of your children being baptized and kind of saved by that baptism and kept saved by faithfulness. And he said in that sequence of images posted on their Instagram account that um, when a child rejects the faith and the parents say, well, we did all we could, the gist of his 10 slides was, well, no, you didn't, because your kid is this way because of your failure. It's your fault that they're gay. It's your fault that they're not a Christian. It's your fault that things didn't turn out the way you had hoped because you just didn't do the right thing enough. 
Now, this is my summary. He didn't say it like this. He said it in a much more long-winded way. But then he tried to, to give you some salve for your conscience at the end by saying, oh, but there's forgiveness in Christ. I kind of think that if, you know, my child ended up gay or a troon, I, I failed somewhere as a parent. Didn't help the fact that he walked you out on this bridge and then shoved you off. That's just called accountability, self-accountability. At the end of the day, this is a theology of glory. It's a karma theology. If you do this, you will get that for the outcome. Well, not necessarily. Theology of glory is also built on escapism and pietism. We're trying to escape the bad. We're trying to escape this, this world. We're trying to escape our present here. reality. We're trying to withdraw from the world and withdraw from the problems. Let's chop up the country into a whole bunch of smaller subgroups and balkanize it and make it like the Baptists get this state and the Presbyterians get that state and the Methodists, well, there are there any Methodist Christians? I don't know. And then the liberals, well, they get California and New York and by liberal, we mean leftist, that sort of thing. No, we mean liberal. Liberalism got us here. So it, just ridiculous, like I said. Theology of glory is also power positive thinking. Who, by the way, Norman Vincent Peale was a post-millennialist. Theology of glory is rationalism, moralism, triumphalism. The response to me criticizing a kingdom now eschatology, they might say, well, the Lord says in his Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're here to make that happen. And I would say, yeah, I'm glad you can read. But that's not the question. The question is not whether or not the Bible says that. It's what does that mean? And I don't think it means what you're saying that it means. He just on this rationalism, moralism, bride. triumphalism, one theologian outlines it this way. That rationalism is what makes sense to the natural mind. For example, here's five steps to take back America. First, we need to separate from the world. Let's all move to red states. Let's get a certain number of people to move to Georgia so that we can swing that back. You have your rational plan. Secondly, moralism. Here's our formula to earn God's favor. Well, America is a mess because the church hasn't had the right theology. As my cousin who's here, he says, um, I wish someday that I would hate my sin as much as the postmillennialist hates dispensationalism. They literally say that certain places are in the condition that they're in, such as America, because of dispensational theology. Who? And I would just like to introduce you to the moral majority. Or Jerry Falwell or these men who were dispensationalists and they were very civically involved. This doesn't pass the sniff test. It's a lie. Our country is not in the condition that it's in because 40 years ago, some people were, a lot of people were dispensationalists. That has nothing to do with it. Of course. But, that's but in your moralistic framework, you would say, well, if we had the right theology, then America wouldn't be in the condition that we're in. Or if we just did more and tried harder, then there wouldn't be these problems. Again, it's not an eschatology debate. He's trying to make it an eschatology debate. It's really closer to a political debate between some sort of paleoconservative idea and uh, a neoconservative idea, which he's a clear neocon because he believes that America is an idea. Uh, so that's what this is closer to. And it's also a turf war. It really is. These, you know, a lot of people are just jockeying for influence. And not to be morbid, but, you know, and I don't want John MacArthur to die cause, at, at all, but they think that they are going to be the next John MacArthur, basically. So they, they want to be the natural successor to him, and it, it's just not going to work like that. And they're trying to jockey for power and influence here. It's, that's largely what this is about. The other part is, you know, there's a political debate here. It's not an eschatology debate. It's not a classical two kingdoms debate. It's not a debate about presuppositional and Thomistic apologetics. That's not what this is. You hear a lot of this in the anti-abortion community, which I'm involved in that. I'm involved in anti-abortion ministry. But they would say, well, the reason why Planned Parenthood exists is because the church has allowed it. 
That's a strong accusation against the bride of Christ. And Jesus loves his church. And Jesus so identifies with his church that the lie to the church, he interprets in the book of Acts as lying to him. So much so that when Ananias and Sapphira did it, they lied to the church, God struck them dead. When you accuse the church, you've taken the side of Satan. I would be very cautious about protesting some of the most solid churches in the country, which these people do. They'll take graphic signs and stand out in front of churches and say, your church needs to repent because you're not political enough. And I'm talking about pretty political churches, pretty right-wing churches. But they're not enough. Thirdly, well, the reason why they're not enough is because they haven't adopted this theology of glory mindset of the triumphalism, dominionism. Triumphalism is a plan for dominion in this life. In other words, we win down here. And that's the problem with the scenario I just described, including the church I just talked about. There's this man named John MacArthur in California who has a very famous clip going around that says, we lose down here. And this makes the Christian nationalists very angry. They say, no, we don't. We win down here. To which I would say, well, what exactly? And how? I mean, Christians throughout history have had victories. They've had Ws. But let's talk about John MacArthur for a second. Um, John MacArthur has a terrible track record on the issue of abortion. Historically speaking, if we go back 30 years ago, um, John MacArthur was holding the cloaks of police officers, so to speak, who were arresting Christians protesting outside of abortion clinics, abortuaries. He was, pro he was holding the cloaks, justifying that, saying Christians don't block access to abortion mills. That's not what Christians do. That's what John MacArthur said. He's, and he said it to the pagan media, the Los Angeles Times. Gee, I wonder why people are protesting his church for not being pro-life enough. I wonder why. How's that going for you? Now, back to the power of positive thinking. Believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. But with sound self-confidence, you can succeed. A sense of inferiority and inadequacy interferes with the attainment of your hopes. But self-confidence leads to self-realization and successful achievement. By the way, this guy was a pastor in New York City on 29th Street and 5th Avenue, not that far from where I live. A statue of him still stands outside the church. He's the author, Norman Vincent Peale, of The Power of Positive Thinking. And I'm here to tell you today that the modern post-millennial Christian nationalist theonomic movement is a power of positive thinking movement. If only we were more optimistic, we would be taking over this world. The reason we haven't is because we think that we lose down here. But instead, if you just thought we win down here, then we would be winning. Welcome to the power of positive thinking. Which is honestly not that much different from manifesting things. You know, the new age concept where you just like look in the mirror and you say, I am healthy, I am wealthy, I am rich. This is not Christian, by the way. Here's some biblical examples of the theology of glory from the book of 1 Samuel. There's several examples. You can find them all throughout the Bible, but here's just a few, and if you want to keep it simple, stick to the book of 1 Samuel. So Israel demands a king. Why do they want a king? To be like the other nations. Which king do they want? We want someone who's tall. Why? Because we want someone who's a head taller. We want someone who's strong and handsome. We want Saul. Give us Saul. David? No, 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 no. He's too small. He's short. He's, no. He's young. He's got these taller brothers. How about them? This is the natural way the unbeliever thinks. We think and we look with our eyes. I'll remind you the words from 1 Samuel 16. Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. The Lord said, because I have rejected this one. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Remember David and Saul's armor. The theology of glory says, well, if you're going to fight the giant, you've got to come in with your big weapons. If you're going to beat the giant, you need to be stacked. You've got to have the full array of human strength in order to beat him. 
The question, by the way, is not whether or not it is God's will to see the reign of God on the earth realized. The answer is obviously plainly yes. Yes, it is God's desire that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Yes, I can read the Bible. So can you. So can all of us, hopefully. But that's not the question. There's a bunch of questions, and I've just listed off a few of them. For example, well, actually, what is the kingdom of God? Not does God want his kingdom advanced. This is part of the deception that is part of the DNA of the Christian nationalist movement. Why? What do you mean? Well, it's lying. They say, well, we want the kingdom of God, and you don't. No, that's not it. The question here is, what is the nature of the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Christian nationalism fundamentally blurs the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Sometimes they'll even be open enough to say that. Yeah, we're not two kingdoms, we're one kingdom. And then they'll insert a ripped out of context, Kyperian quote about all of the world is mine. Second question is, who is a member of the kingdom? Does mere citizenship in a nation render one as a citizen of the kingdom of God? Is America the kingdom of God? They wouldn't usually say that, but that is the logical implication of their actions and what they're teaching, as well as the one kingdom concept that, yeah, this is the kingdom of God. See, I'm not big on two kingdom theology in general. I would not consider myself two kingdom. I I just kind of would side more with one kingdom without any of the theonomy or post-millennialism stuff because I only see one kingdom talked about in scripture and that's God's kingdom. God's kingdom, which is at hand, uh, at least when you know Jesus started out in ministry. And then God's kingdom, which is a mustard seed that which grows a lot into a giant tree. So that's the kingdom that I read about in scripture. Uh, I, you don't really read about the kingdom of man. It's more of a philosophical concept and theological application. So, I'm again, I'm not super interested in this debate because it's also not super relevant because Christian nationalism, I would argue, predates this debate over a kingdom theology and or two kingdom versus one kingdom. Uh, Stephen Wolf is classical two kingdom. Uh, I think Joel Webin would be one kingdom uh one king, one king, four spheres type of uh, mentality, which I would fall more in line with that. So my thoughts on that. Another question would be, how does one enter the kingdom of God? Do you enter the kingdom of God through baptism, through church membership, through civil obedience? Are you a member of the kingdom because you're a member of the city or because your parents sprinkled you? What if you don't want to be? Oh, that's why we take you out behind the barn and shoot you. That's how we can usher in the kingdom. We, we kill all the non-kingdom citizens. Oh, I didn't know that was your prerogative. Number four, must one be regenerated to enter the kingdom? Like, these That's a are huge question. Ridiculous if this is the kingdom mans. where we're building the kingdom, you have to actually be a Christian to be part of the kingdom. Is the kingdom of God even Christian at all? For those seeking to rebuild Christendom, that's a very important, very relevant question because there, frankly, there's a lot of Christendom that wasn't regenerate, wasn't Christian. And then another question is, how does the kingdom spread? Does the kingdom of God spread through civic decree? If only we had that Christian prince, it's going to be addressed later. If only we had a Christian ruler... Don't get me wrong, I voted for Donald Trump. Probably will again. I don't know. That's what it looks like at this point. But that man is not a Christian prince. He's not a Christian ruler. And neither is the second, third, or fourth, or fifth option that's going to come up. The kingdom of God does not spread through civic decree. It does not come through national borders either. And it certainly doesn't come through wars and conquests. And it doesn't come through human reproduction either. Wrong. I would say all of this is kind of wrong. So civic decree. We, we observe through history that civic decree really advanced the kingdom of God. You can see that the church exploded in the 4th century um, because of civic decree, and not just in the United States, or not, not, not just in the Roman Empire, but we also see it in its contemporaries that went Christian as well, that Christianity spread pretty rapidly in those nations by civic decree. So patently false that um, Christian, that Christianity doesn't spread, that the kingdom of God doesn't spread 
by use of civil decree, um, which was a result of the gospel being preached to a ruler who believed and then took decisive action on faith and, you know, ruled like a Christian and thus had civil decrees that favored the church and Christianity. So that that's just historically wrong. Uh, the Roman Empire is proof enough that after Milvian Bridge, Christianity exploded in parts of Rome that it had never reached. So, wrong on that front. Uh, wars and conquest, again, history kind of says, yeah, it did happen. Like, let's be real. Uh, n- national borders, again, doesn't hurt. It's part of what a nation is, so it's part of the wars and conquest and civil decree. But let's talk about how the kingdom, you know, the church shrank in areas because of wars and conquest. You know, why Why isn't there, what happened to the church in Jerusalem? What happened to the church in Alexandria? What happened to the church in Antioch? To the church in Constantinople? What happened to those churches? Wars and conquests. So, logically speaking, if the church can shrink uh, then the church can grow through these things as well. I'm not advocating anything, but I'm just saying, uh, historically speaking, that's just a reality. And then human reproduction is one of the most people who become Christians become Christians because their parents and families are Christians. Most people don't have a dramatic story. It's cool if you do. It's cool if you don't. So human reproduction, uh, you know, and we see that in the book of Acts, like uh, for you and your children's children's, I, I, I think, repent for that I, is the quote that I'm going for. Um, that yes, the, the kingdom of God does spread through believers having children, fulfilling the dominion mandate. It does spread through that. And then, you know, obviously catechizing them, preaching the gospel to them. So it does spread through this. This is ridiculous. As much as these people want it's to say... It's ahistorical. That's not building the kingdom. By the way, if you enter the kingdom through baptism and regeneration is not really necessary, why would you, Christian nationalists, stand against, against countless millions of Roman Catholics who have been baptized as infants? Now, this is part of the issue with the definition of Christian nationalism. It's so broad and it's so undefined that, yeah, there are Catholic Christian nationalists. There's also Jewish Christian nationalists. They're not Christian. And then this pan-Protestant Christian nationalism project that Stephen Wolf is advocating for, by definition, doesn't allow for Roman Catholics, but I know that they would allow for Roman Catholics, sort of, but not according to the definition. So, if the kingdom of God isn't spreading through these civic decrees, national borders, wars, and conquest, and human reproduction, then how does it spread? Well, I would think that it spreads through people actually being converted, people believing in Jesus, believing the gospel, being born again. But what if that's pietism? What if that's, uh, oh, you're too focused on the soul and you're not focused enough on the, the brick and mortar? Well, again, in steps are friendly Christian nationalists saying, well, evangelism is an idol. We should stop prioritizing that. We should stop talking about that. Let's, let's, let's downplay that because the evangelical church has made an idol of evangelism. Oh, by the way, here's my 32-part nuance, bro, on what I just said. Uh, so, first of all, he was trying to make an argument that Baptists can't be Christian nationalists because Christian nationalism requires, you know, Pedo baptism was kind of the underlying argument that he was making, but I guess too cowardly or not smart enough to make the argument that he was making. Uh, now he's going after the evangelism is an idol thing. And again, this was a much broader, 
this is a much more fine point that he was saying. Obviously, it was it started out as a hot take, but the point that he's making is that churches put all this effort on international missions, international missions, and they ignore their own backyards. Um, even the Christian uh, Christianity Today or Compromise Today, as I call it, said you know churches can unite around international missions because you know if you just send money and people far far away and don't think about it, you you all come together thinking that you're all together and um, you can use that as an excuse for not confronting problems in your own backyard. Whereas, what if, or, or we can talk about how the megachurch mentality is that the churches are the place for the evangelizing, we, that we bring people in and we evangelize them here. That that's a, That's a mentality here. There's so many ways in which this could be true. And then I'll accuse you of taking me out of context and distorting me and slandering me, et cetera, et cetera. The name of the game, by the way, is to make a false statement and then cry nuance and context when confronted. And prominent Christian nationalists are making names for themselves by doing this. Sometimes they even admit that what they're doing is playing the Mott and Bailey. If you don't know what the Mott and Bailey is, you need to know that. So look that up and it'll be on Mike or James's website. Uh, wrong. A.D. Robles is the authority on the Mott and Bailey maneuver. Mott and Bailey is this word game between where you push forward on one side and then you withdraw back to a safe defensible position. And you're, just, you're playing word games with people. You're lying to people. You're deceiving them. At its core, Christian nationalism can justifiably be called a theology of glory that seeks to build the kingdom of God on the earth without necessarily requiring gospel preaching or conversion. Its central focus is morality, power, and politics, none of which are actually overtly Christian. When we're talking about the Christian nationalism, why, why does he have a quote of himself? About? It always goes back to the Ten Commandments. In his own speech. Surprise. Ten Commandments are not overtly Christian. It's the law, not the gospel. It is overtly Christian. So at least have the integrity to say that your Christian nationalist project is is Judeo-Christian. No. Not just Christian-Christian. The problem is you got all these raging anti-Semites in the Christian nationalist movement. It's not Judeo-Christian because it's, first of all, again, we're going to get into covenant theology. And is, is he dispensationalist? I don't know. Um, irrelevant because we're not debating necessarily eschatology. But it's irrelevant because, first of all, Jews post-70 AD are a completely different religion. Judaism's not the same religion, so we shouldn't share... Um, the, the cultural achievements. Second of all, um, all the Bible is Christian and therefore it is a Christian book. It is a Christian holy book. It's not really the Jewish holy book these days because they also have the Talmud. So, and, and more oral tradition. So these things matter. I mean, Jews essentially, Orthodox Jews essentially believe that you can't interpret the written law without, an, without the oral law. So no, the Ten Commandments aren't uh, Judeo-Christian. They are Christian. The morality that's being advocated is not explicitly Christian. The politics that are being advocated are not ex explicitly Christian. And the power that's being advocated for is not Christian either. Wrong. So let's talk briefly about theology of the cross. Uh, Martin Luther coined the term during his Heidelberg Disputation in 1518, which was a year after the Door incident, you know, nailing the 95 Theses in 1517. There's a bunch of points on his Heidelberg Disputation, but one of them is this, that a theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. At its core, the theology of the cross is the sum of the entire Christian life. It is by grace through faith. The theology of glory versus the theology of the cross is ultimately grace versus works. When we talk about theology of glory, we don't mean glory to God. We mean human glory. We mean an up and to the right, increasing wealth, power, control. So... Andy Woodard, not a student of history, and it's clear, like, what does Luther think about the civil government and, you know, Christianity? Did he think that one through? Seriously. Uh, Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church, 
you know, which would be a heavy believer in established religion in multiple Protestant countries. Um, yeah, yeah, he, he didn't think that one through. If he wanted to say that a Christian government, uh, that Christian nationalism is uh, not uh, compa- uh, uh, compatible with these ideas that Luther uh, believed in and taught, and yet Luther's views on the civil magistrate would be more or less compatible uh, with Christian nationalism, especially compared to the you know neoconservative and Andy Woodard, Andrew, Andrew Woodard, authoritarianism versus the way of the cross. Here's some biblical examples of the theology of the cross. Gideon's army started with 32,000 soldiers, was cut down again and again, reduced to 300 men. Why? So that God alone would receive the glory. Think about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul was given a physical affliction to keep him humble. Why? Because he had been given such tremendous privilege. He'd been given such tremendous access to God. He had visions of God, really, truly. And so to keep him humble, to keep him from being inflated in his pride and ego, Paul gave him this affliction. We'll talk about that in a moment. Another example of the theology of the cross is Jesus' birth. If you were going to save the birth, what kind of say, if you're going to save the world, what kind of savior would you send? Would the savior be born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem? Bethlehem, the small little town that's on the outskirts of the real town, Jerusalem. A savior born in a stable to a young girl who's of no prominence. No, a theology of glory would say we need the top kind of leader. We need a, we need a savior like Saul. And last and most importantly. The theology of the cross comes from Jesus' death itself, which is that the, this rescue, this liberation, this redemption actually comes from... Isn't it worth uh, noting that God chose Saul? Thus, David would not touch God's anointed. So it's worth noting that God chose Saul. Uh, not necessarily the people as much. I mean, Saul was everything that you would want in a king, tall, handsome, and all. But God's the one who chose Saul. Just be clear. Through death. Jesus' death, the king of glory dying, the greatest man who ever was, the son of God, the savior of the world, this second person of the Trinity would actually die on the cross. He would surrender. He would submit to the hands of murderers and die. But then he would rise. Rather than invading with armies and just doing a bloodbath and saying, hey, I'm here now, kingdom now, time to build. By the way, something I should have said two slides ago, just to be clear, calling Christian nationalism a theology of glory and calling it anti-Christian or sub-Christian is not calling all of those who hold to Christian nationalism non-Christians. I am not calling all Christian nationalists non-Christians. I am not saying Christian nationalists aren't saved. Though certainly, some are not saved. But what I'm saying is that as a system, it is a system which is at war with the true nature of the gospel. It is at war with the true church, and it is at war with the real kingdom of God. And that Christian nationalism is no more Christian than Christian Maoism is Christian. A reference to James Lindsay, I guess. Then, theology of the cross, then, up to where we are right now. Gideon's army, one more thing I should have said, is that in Gideon's army, he had 32,000 men, which was reduced to 300 men, but he was fighting against an army of 135,000, which, by the way, 135,000 versus 300, is James, you know how many that is, like the ratio? It's 450 to 1. So imagine with me that you are playing football, that you are on the field, of an NFL field, and you, your team is you, one, one person, and the other team is 450. And you're trying to get that ball to the end zone, and there's 450 people in your way. These are not good odds. You're not going to win. That's what God reduced the odds to with Gideon's army. Why? So that he would be the one who receives the glory. This is the fundamental nature of the entire religion of Christianity. That God sees people who are strong and mighty and powerful and they're full of it, and he says, no, you're a little too strong for me. Let's weaken you. Let's bring you down a little bit. 
There's a very famous poem in this book called Valley Vision, which appears in prayers. Uh, it's a prayer about paradox. Lord, what high it? and holy, meek and lowly, thou what hast brought Puritans me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths the civil of magistrates? Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, deepest wells, and the deeper the well, the brighter the stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Or the words from Paul in his reference to the thorn in the flesh. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What does that mean? That means if you don't have weakness, if you're doing this in your own strength, you're not going to get the power of Christ. Which is what I'm seeing in this entire Christian nationalist project, that, is that it is built on the arm of the flesh. No, it's built on faith without works is dead. Like, this is people, you know, working towards what they're praying for. You want to pray for a revived America, for a revived uh, Brazil, revived Hungary. You work for it. You you work like God's going to answer your prayer. You, You don't just do nothing. If you're not, if you're praying for something, you don't, you just don't do nothing about it. I mean, if there is something you can do, which Christian nationalism says there is something you can do. I mean, we got some strategies right here in print. So there is something you can do. Um, and it, it, it takes time. It, it's not going to be an overnight success, and no one's promising that. Which is the reason why it's built on a bunch of Catholic and Jewish philosophers and theologians. Who? Because they're not working with... Christ and his power. Who, who are the Catholics and Jews? This is the reason why they're saying, oh, we need to get rid of the post-war consensus. We need to return to a pre-World War II philosophy that, frankly, we think Hitler got a lot of things right and we need to stop being so nice all the time and we need to implement authoritarianism. We need to implement these strong passions, the strong gods is what they call them. Stop being so nice. Stop committing not to nuke each other, but instead we need to go to war, literally, to have this country as a Christian nation. This all stands in contrast to the law and the gospel. Now, I'm not saying these people don't claim to have law and gospel. They do. They have it. It's written on their, it's, it's written on their statements. But I'm saying that it actually stands in contrast to the theology of the glory. Theology of glory. And it is a contradiction within itself. It is a contradiction in what they're saying and what they're teaching. The law, is, the law of God, when rightly taught and rightly applied, exposes our utter sinfulness and helplessness. It exposes every one of us as sinful and desperately need, needing a savior. And then the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done to reconcile sinners to himself. What has he done? Well, Jesus was incarnate. He's a real person. He's not a a mythical figure, but he was a real person. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came into the world, was incarnate in flesh. He lived among us a sinless life, perfectly obeyed the law of God in our place, then went to the cross and died as a substitute, and then on the third day he rose. And he did all of that to reconcile sinners to himself by his life, death, and resurrection. This is the law gospel paradigm. And it stands in contrast to, in opposition to, outside of, and hostile to the theology of glory. Rightly handling the law is not in accord with rationalism. Your theology of glory says, yeah, we can do this. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can make America this kingdom of God. This rationalism would say that, well, if you just rightly preach and teach the law of God, we can get our country right with God. You just have to obey the law, the law of God. 
this kind of lingo is all over Reformed Christian Twitter right now. Rightly handling the law is also not in accord with moralism. Moralism says, hey, here's a way to be made right with God by your behavior. But actually, rightly understanding the law shows you that you are not and cannot be made right with God by your behavior. Not only are your actions corrupt, but your motives are corrupt as well. Your sin is not skin deep, but rather runs clear to the bone or actually to your heart. By the way, rightly handling the law of God is also not in accord with triumphalism. The nation of Israel had prophets, priests, and kings, yet the entire story of the Old Testament is one continuous story of prophets, priests, and kings all rebelling against God and failing God's standard and disobeying him. But you think you're going to do it better. Truth, Yanni, has never been tried. We'll, we'll do it better this time. Okay. Yeah, because the kings of Israel weren't regenerate. So theoretically, someone who's regenerate and in such authority would do better. A system that, you know, enforces that would be would do better. It, I think that's a pretty low bar, but in any case, it's a ridiculous argument. He doesn't understand politics. He doesn't understand um, law, history. He, he doesn't understand what he's talking about because he's so bought into neoconservatism. We'll see how that works. From the Garden of Eden to post-exilic prophets, you see again and again and again, not a story of people making improvement, but of radically wicked people chosen by God according to his mercy and relentlessly called to repent again and again and again by prophets sent by God. And what do you see? Well, they usually kill the prophets. So then you need Jesus to come in as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And what do they do to him? They kill him too. Then what happens next? Well, he rises from the dead. And today his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that we don't see through certain governments or through brick-and-mortar institutions. Not even those early American institutions, which were built by some post-millennial Puritans who were saying they're going to build America as a city on a hill. Well, those institutions, such as the Ivy League schools, were all lost to apostasy within one generation. And now they are synagogues of Satan. They are not the kingdom of God on the earth. They are training priests of Baal. The gospel tells us, the good news is that Jesus has reconciled sinners to himself by his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection in their place. The gospel tells us that true wisdom... True knowledge and true understanding is ultimately found in the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. It also tells us that Jesus, it tells us not only what Jesus teaches about morality and shows us a path to morality, but it shows us that Jesus is our substitute due to our immorality. That Jesus looks on us in pity and our attempting to contrive a path to perfection. And Jesus says to us, hey guys, I already handled that for you through my life, death, and resurrection. The gospel tells us that Jesus himself will exercise dominion on the earth. Him, not you and me. That Jesus will have dominion on the earth. Not in this exclusively spiritualized way, which he does truly reign in in a spiritualized way in his, the hearts of his people through his word and spirit in the church. Not a lot but of people The Bible also conference. tells us that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and he will reign on the earth truly, actually, and he will actually reign triumphant in power and glory. Now, let's consider a few points of application, how to actually save the world. Number one, recognize that it's not too late to repent. So you may be here today and you're not a Christian and I would extend the offer that Jesus gives to you. You can trust Christ. You can be forgiven of your sins. But beyond that, if you have been lured into Christian nationalism, you've been lured into authoritarian Christianity or theology of glory, it's not too late for you to repent. And for you to, to come back across the bridge, to walk back to the land of sanity and biblical thinking and realism instead of idealism. Yes, believing that American is, is an idea, like he, he's criticizing Christian nationalists for being an ide idealist, an idealism, yet he believes America is an idea. But no, the Christian nationalist has nothing to repent of. Not for that, at least. And if you were lured into the woke movement, I'm sure none of y'all were, but there's lots of people out there that were, that were captivated by these ideas of critical race theory. I said in the beginning that he makes one good point in this, and it's this. And you used to have very effective ministries 
But then your friends introduced you to critical theorists. And that corrupted your entire organization and your entire ministry has now been, been sucked down the drain into this insanity. It is not too late for you to repent. And I mean that, including Nine Marks Ministries, Mark Dever and your whole team. It is not too late to repent. And frankly, you could be quite helpful in standing against Christian authoritarianism. But unfortunately, your entire ministry has been wrecked by this woke agenda. So if you have wandered off into the wilderness of insanity, please come back. Jesus has died for these sins too. You can be forgiven for these sins as well whether it be Christian authoritarianism or just authoritarianism in general, or the insanity of wokeness. You can be forgiven. Now, secondly, a word of application for us is to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and to recognize that God actually raises up rulers and he lowers them down. And we might think that we have a lot of control over these things, but the Bible says, blessed be the name of God, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Number three, put no confidence in princes. It's a shame to me that all of these so-called psalm-singing reformed Presbyterians who have now adopted Christian nationalism, they're singing this psalm in their churches, but they are doing the very opposite of it. Psalm 146.3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Number four, trust. Got to pause right there because he says not to put trust in princes. I agree. I agree. But he puts his trust in the Constitution. He said so multiple times in this entire thing. So it's okay in Andy Woodard's mind to put faith in the Constitution, but it's not okay to put your trust in princes. To put your faith in a piece of paper that's not the Bible is fine, but to put your faith in a person who's going to be wielding the sword of government is not fine. Doesn't really make sense to me, but that's the hypocrisy of his neoconservatism. Like, he, he's accusing Christian nationalists of being idealist, even though he's a neoconservative. He's trying to accuse us of being, uh, of uh, putting our faith in princes and all, but he's putting his faith in a piece of paper and saying just constitution harder. There, there's such a disconnect. Trust wholly, completely in the Lord our God, Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Number five, do not despise the little things. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. First Samuel 14, 6 says, It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Number six, clearly, boldly speak the truth. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statements of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. God's people are people of the truth. So we speak plain truth. We're not lying or deceiving or twisting words. And then number seven, confront evil in the camp when necessary. First Corinthians 5.12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We need to deal with things in-house. We need to deal with the problems that are within the camp. And this is the reason why I've given more attention to this in the last month or so. Because until this Christian nationalist project blew up, the people that have identified with it were my people. That was my side. Those are my guys, so I listen to their podcast on a nearly daily basis. That's true. But now they've followed down this path to tyranny and destruction. And so we need to say something. We need to stand up. We need to resist it. Again, how is restoring America to the laws that existed at our founding tyranny? It's ridiculous. And again, not all dictatorship is tyranny. Like, uh, the, the rise of liberal democracy has led to more tyranny than monarchy ever did 
You know, the amount of power that a monarch had is you just pales in comparison to even local magistrates uh, in contemporary days. So anyway, we got through that. Andy Woodard is a liar, uh, just a slanderer. And he just he tries to just he operates in bad faith and tries to justify operating in bad faith because he's just going to lie, make up things, take, you know, fringe arguments that are and try to make them mainstream at best. That's what he's trying to do. That's me trying to describe the best of what his actions are, but he does not understand history. He's trying to pit the people that he's quoting against the ideas that they would have held at the time, like Luther and the Puritans. You want to cite a Puritan poem, but you're disagreeing with how the Puritans would have viewed government because they would agree with the Christian nationalist. Uh, Luther, you're trying to use his uh, glory, um, uh, his comment on glory of the cross to use against Christian nationalism, even though Luther would have sided with the Christian nationalist. It's a ridiculous argument. It doesn't hold up on its own. He doesn't provide evidence. He doesn't name names. This is what liars do. So anyway, that's all I have to say about that. This is a long video, longest video I've done. That's not a live stream in a while. Have a blessed day. We'll catch you on the next one.